All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter. We return to this passage yet again. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. And put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day. Help us understand. Give us clarity. Give us truth. Give us your spirit, God. I pray that you would let your unction be upon me, that you would pour out your word through me, and that you would allow, God, that your truth is communicated in a way that transforms our lives. Father, anything that I say that's not of you, I pray that it lay on the floor, a dead thing, but that every word that is yours be driven into our hearts, that it would bear fruit, that it would transform, and that the glory of Christ would be known in this place in a way that it has not yet been. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we come to the crux of the argument of this passage. We've been at it for a while. And the writer of Hebrews makes an assertion that we have to deal with. If somebody falls away, they can never be restored. There is simply no possibility that somebody could be found in Christ, be washed in the blood of the Lamb, be adopted as a child of God, and subsequently fall away, and then come back and be saved again. Salvation is a one-time thing, period. No do-overs, no mulligans, no take-backs. Now, before we can correctly interpret this statement, however, we have to understand the position of the rest of Scripture. There's no doubt that this passage has caused much consternation in the church over the centuries. When it does, it's because people have forgotten one simple thing. Scripture never contradicts itself. Scripture never changes its mind because God never changes his. When there's an apparent contradiction, the problem is with our understanding and not with the word of God. Therefore, it's important that we remember the second rule of good hermeneutics. Scripture is its own best interpreter. We use the many simple and plain passages to correctly understand and interpret the few dark and difficult passages. This law must be applied here, or we will go very far astray. So the question we have to deal with first is this. What does the rest of Scripture tell us about the security of the believer? In other words, can true believers fall away? So let's begin with Jesus. It seems a good place to start. We are Christians after all. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking. This is, by the way, his last 
popular sermon. It's at the end of this sermon that the multitudes left him. This is the last time Jesus was the rock star of the age. Um, So, in John chapter 6, we're going to start reading at verse 35 and read a fairly healthy passage. We're going to read all the way to verse 51. And we're going to think about some things that Jesus says here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, They shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. And this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that no one may eat, or that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So. I'm just going to run through the high points here, because we have a lot of ground to cover to to establish this point. And the first one is this. There are those among the audience that Jesus is speaking to who simply are not his. They're not chosen by the Father. They're not called of the Father. They're not drawn by the Father. They're not taught by the Father. Because what the Scripture tells us is that everyone who is given comes. Everyone who is chosen is given. Everyone who is chosen and given and comes is taught by the Father. And if those things are true, then when somebody is, is absolutely, they hear the truth, but they're not responsive in any way, it means that they're not, they're not drawn at this point. Now, it doesn't mean they're not drawn later. They might be. They might not be. But we have to recognize the truth that among those who are listening to Jesus, and by inference, among those who listen to us, there are those who are called and those who are not. There are those who simply do not and will not believe. And they do not come because they are not in the hand of the Father. So, Jesus also says that every single person that the Father chooses will come. In other words, there is nobody that God will lose that he intends to save. There is an absolute zero percentage of anybody that Jesus died for who will not be saved. Every single one of them will be saved. Every single one that comes to Jesus will be accepted by Jesus. And then he goes on to say, none of them who are in my hand will be lost. Now hang on to that. I want you to hold that in your head because Jesus says plainly that all of this stuff that leads up to the surety of us being in his hand, chosen by the Father, called, taught, made new, all these things mean that every single person who's in the hand of Jesus will not 
be lost. Every single one of them will be raised up to eternal life, and nobody puts themselves by his own will into the hand of of Jesus. It is the sovereign will and the sovereign call of God. Man's efforts to obey God ultimately lead to their death. Right? The Jews did what they did. They obeyed. They followed. They honored the Old Testament to the best of their ability. What does Jesus say? Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. But the only thing that gives us life eternal is belief in Jesus Christ. Everything that man tries to do on his own will fail. Man works will, man's works will ultimately destroy him. It is only the grace of God that saves. Okay? So all of this is there. Now skip forward to John chapter 10. We're still going to listen to some words of Jesus. Again, we're Christians. We ought to listen to what Jesus has to say. John chapter 10 starting at verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. What does he say? He says that he is the author and the giver of eternal life. And nobody can snatch them out of his hand. That includes us. Process that. You do not have the power to take yourself out of the hand of God. Why? Because you do not have the power to put yourself in the hand of God to begin with. It's not your work. It's not your job. It's not your power. It's not you. It's him. He gives us eternal life. And nobody is greater than God, and therefore He keeps us. Does that make sense? God is the one who holds us, and the security of our belief is not found in us, but in Him. He is the one who is the author of our eternal salvation. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, Paul writing to the church at Colossae says this, beginning at verse 3. He says, set your mind, I'm sorry, yeah, we'll go on to verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. What does Paul lay out for us here? He lays out for this this really simple dynamic which is profound and far-reaching. You are not who you were. 
if you are in Christ. You are not the same person that your mama gave birth to. Period. If you belong to Christ, something in you has been changed. You have been given a new spirit. You have been made a new creature. And that new creature has an entirely new paradigm. That new creature has an entirely new outlook. That new creature has an entirely new being. And that being is hid not in himself or in his own works, but in Christ. He will never die. Right? He is the one who has been raised. He is the one who has been seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will be there forever. And if your life is hidden in him, you don't have the ability to unhide it. He's there holding on to it. You cannot pull it from him. You cannot lose it. He will not lose it. He's watching over it. He himself then becomes our surety. His life eternal is the surety for yours. It's not about your faith, okay? It's not about you believing. It's not about you hanging on with all you have in you so that maybe, just maybe, you might get there. It's not about you working with all you have so that the balance scale on this side outweighs the balance scale on that side. That's all garbage. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ saves those who he came to save. Period. End of discussion. And he becomes our security. He becomes our surety. Our security is completely the working of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 3. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, how does Peter address the the people to whom he's writing this letter? He addresses them as people who are begotten of God according to His abundant mercy. And we are begotten of God according to His abundant mercy by what? Well, through the resurrection of Jesus. And unto what? Unto an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, and preserved in heaven. And you, he says, who have that, are yourselves kept by the power of God towards salvation. It is God's power that holds you. And the faith that he gives us is the vessel by which he holds us. So somebody's going to say to me, but pastor, I've heard them talk about that faith is important for salvation. And yes, faith is important for salvation. But you need to understand this. Your faith is not your faith. It's not something that was in you that you just dreamed up. It's not something that you strengthened and somehow managed to make good. Salvation is given by God. And in the end, the salvation of the elect will finally be revealed Because God makes sure that it will be revealed. The faith that God gives is a completely different animal than the faith that any person might have. So you can say to somebody, well, I have faith that this will happen. What does that mean? It means that you believe it. You look at it and you say, the the circumstances bear this out. The evidence points in this way. And then past the evidence, there's this little bit of something in me which says, I can believe that. I can trust that that might actually come to pass. Well, You can work on growing that faith. You can talk about having faith in humanity. You can talk about having faith in these things and faith in those things. But the difference is this. The faith that saves, it's not a continuum. 
Okay, I've been, I've been making this point in men's Bible study on Saturday mornings for a couple of weeks, so guys, bear with me. Don't nod off. Faith is not a continuum. It's not something that starts out weak down here, and then it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, and then magically it crosses this threshold, and you have faith now that saves because you've worked on your faith, and it's gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. That's the way it's often portrayed, but that's completely not biblical. The Bible teaches us that faith is a gift from God. So while this faith that we have in us inherently might be able to be made stronger, you might be able to grow it in some fashion or another, it's not the same animal. It's not the same thing. There is a moment wherein God imparts faith to a dead soul, calls them to life, and they see themselves through the eyes of God. They see their sin. They see their rebellion. They see their offense against Him. And the first words of a living soul are, God, have mercy on me. Please, God, forgive me. That new faith in them is a completely different thing. It's on an entirely new plane. It is the gift of God. It is not of man. Because if you could do it, you could boast about it. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. If you could make the faith that saves you be strong enough to save you, then really who saved you? You did. Right? Jesus could eventually be taken completely out of the picture. If your faith is strong enough to do anything. It's something that only God can do. It's something that only God can produce. And it is this work of preservation is God's work because the work of salvation is God's work. Jude 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called and sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now this work of preservation has these three components in it. And I love this verse. It means that if you are being preserved, it's because you are called, okay? And you are sanctified by God, and you are being preserved in Jesus Christ. How many of you put up veggies? Canned stuff, put things away, right? We all do it to some degree or another, some better than others. Me, not so good, but we try. When you talk about preserving something, does the produce that you're putting in the can have anything to do with the preserving? Not really. It's the object of it. The produce doesn't preserve itself or everybody would do it. Amen? The produce is preserved by an action of an entity outside itself. If you are preserved in Christ, what does that imply? The same thing. You are being preserved by God, by an action outside of you, which has nothing to do with you except that God Himself has decided to preserve you. He Himself has decided that you will be saved because of His work. Now, eventually, the more you dwell on these things and study the Scripture, the more these things become pressed into your soul, and the more these things take root in you, and the more encouragement and comfort you have, until finally you can say with Paul, as he said at the end of his life, For this reason I suffer the loss of all things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. There is nothing in us which will be shaken when God plants this truth in our heart. You cannot fall away from God. That is the consistent, complete, universal declaration of Scripture. 
So whatever the writer of Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews 6, he agrees, whatever the writer of Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews 6, he's not saying that true believers fall away. So let's look at what he's saying with that in mind and try to wrestle out exactly who he's talking about and exactly what he is telling us about them and about us. So first of all, who's he speaking about? He's speaking about those who were not long ago converted from Judaism. And they were converted on the evidence of good argument. They were converted on the evidence of of good, honest-speaking men who proclaimed the gospel and the truth was made evident to them in some degree, and they had this intellectual decision. They maybe saw miraculous signs given. There were a lot of them in those days. And, and they were not only the recipients of common grace, but there was this little kicker of something else, which allowed them some level of insight wherein they could see the truth of this and mentally acknowledge that it was true. They had found some convincing evidence of Christ, enough to mentally make a decision for themselves that they would follow Christ. This is all about man's will. It's all about the will of the flesh, and it's all about those decisions and those ideas that we have in our own self. They might even have made a profession of their own belief. I have decided. Amen? What they've decided is that they're going to use the natural gifts that were given to them in a manner which at this time seems pleasing to them. And that they will continue to be on this team as long as this team and they can get along. As long as they can see how good they are and honor me as I think I deserve to be honored. Give me what I want. Treat me with the respect that I need to make me feel good. Don't cross me. And don't impose yourselves in any of the places in my life that I'm going to reserve and say, this part's mine, I'm going to keep it. It's not a very nice list, but I want you just to pause for a minute and think about, if you've been in church long at all, you've seen people get mad and get in a huff and get out. Is it not always they've crossed one of those boundaries? It's never about the truth of Scripture, except where the truth of Scripture has been applied to their lives in a way they didn't like. It's not that doctrinally they look at it and say, you know, Pastor, I just don't agree with this truth, and I don't agree with the way that you're interpreting things, and I think that we need to look at the Bible a little differently, and therefore I'm going to go worship in another church. I've been doing this here 25 years, all told almost 30 now. And in 30 years, I've had that exact conversation one time. And come to find out the one time I had that conversation, they were lying to me anyway. Because there was other stuff going on in their life that they didn't like me preaching about. They just didn't have the courage to say it. You see, in the end, when somebody gets mad and gets in a huff and leaves, it's because the truth has crossed them. Or the church just hasn't treated them like they want to be treated. Because in their mind, they are the end-all, be-all of how everything should be. This is human nature. This is who we are. And so a person who's made a decision like that can very easily undecide. And if they undecide enough, those become the people that you talk to who will say something like this. I tried Jesus. He didn't work. I tried church. Never going back. 
I mean, having nothing to do with organized religion. I can worship God in the field just as well. Well, maybe, but you won't. Be honest with yourself, at least. You know you won't. In the end, what the Scripture tells us is that those who fall away never were. Because what the Scripture is laying out for us here is very clearly two separate categories of people. Those who belong to God and those who do not. So those who are not true converts had all of the common graces and then they had this little bit of something else. I'm going to call it a kicker because I couldn't think of anything different. This little bump of something else. And, and what the writer of Hebrews gives us in these first verses that we looked at, verses um, 4 and 5, is what those look like. They had some level of intellectual understanding. And if you'll reflect, for we've been going through these for the last five weeks. They had some level of intellectual understanding. They had an understanding of the simple academic truth of what the Bible says. Although spiritual things can only be discerned by spiritual people, the scripture tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man does not receive the things of God, nor can he, for they're spiritually discerned. There is still the plain evidence of simple, plain language spoken to somebody, excuse me, spoken to somebody that they can readily understand. I do not stand up here and speak to you in a language that you do not understand. I don't preach in Latin. I don't preach in Greek. I don't preach in Spanish. I don't preach in Hebrew. If I lived someplace where they spoke those languages, I would. I speak to you in English because that is the language of this land. And the language that I'm speaking should be readily understandable by the people who hear me. I try to proclaim the truth of God in such a way that you can hear my words and understand the simple truth of what I'm saying. I recognize that there is a spiritual component to this, whereby the underlying truths will sometimes be obscured, or if they're seen at all, they will be opposed by somebody who is not converted. I deal with that reality in in all the things that I do. But there is an element by which the simple things that are said make sense, I hope, and are understandable. Somebody can have some intellectual understanding and agree with these things. They can enjoy the external flavor of some of the good things of the Spirit. So when a church is functioning rightly, it's a nice bunch of people and a good place to be. And an unbeliever might see that and desire to be included in it because it's a very lonely world out there. We were talking about this yesterday in Bible study, and Adam pointed out that of all the Gen Zs and Gen Xs, most of the young men cannot name one good friend. They're utterly isolated. It's a very lonely place out there, and people want to be included in something. They want to be a part of something. And so there's an aspect of church life that is appealing to unbelievers just because if a church is functioning right, we love each other, and it's evident. They want that, and I can't blame them. But just wanting to be loved is not enough to understand the truth. Because at the bottom of the truth of how we get right with God is this reality. In our flesh, we hate Him. And we have to deal with that before we get any of the other stuff. But there is such a thing as somebody who makes a decision because they like the good bits. 
They may have had the general call of the gospel poured out, and they might even have had some sort of little twitching in them, thinking about coming to Christ. Most of the time, these are emotional responses. Most of the time, these are based on things that are not necessarily scriptural. They have had exposure to the word and to the power of the truth, and they have seen much of the working of God in the world around them. And in the end, all of this did not have the effect of calling them to life because they are not currently being called by the Spirit of God unto life. This is what the Scripture affirms about all sorts of people in the Bible. Anybody remember a woman in the Scripture named Lydia? What does the Bible tell us about Lydia? That she was a worshiper of God and that she met regularly with the women and that they met for prayer. And then at some point when Paul was there, God opened her heart to receive the truth. Prior to that, Lydia was just a woman doing the best she could. And if God had left her in that way, Lydia would have been in hell. But God didn't leave her that way. He opened her heart and he granted to her faith and he granted to her life. And she received the scripture, and she understood. There was a change made in how she understood the things that were said. This is the sovereign working of God. And when that happens, things are very different. But what the writer of Hebrews is talking about with this group of people that are in the first part of this, there's no mention of saving faith. There's no mention of of them having their hearts open to receive the truth. There's nothing ascribed to them that is particular to being made alive. They're not... Born again, the scripture doesn't tell us. The scripture doesn't tell us that they were called according to God's purpose. The scripture doesn't tell us they were justified. The scripture doesn't tell us they were sanctified. The scripture doesn't tell us that they were united unto Christ. And in fact, later on, at the very end of this passage, in Hebrews 6, right at verses 7 and, and following, it actually compares them to the ground which receives all the good things of God but produces only briars and thistles. That indicates to me that these are not Christians we're speaking of who have fallen away. But there are true converts that the writer of Hebrews is speaking of. Look down at verse 9. Go back to Hebrews 6. I want to back up and give you a a bird's eye view of part of this passage that we, we may have lost sight of. So here's the flow. Hebrews 6 Starting at verse 1, he talks about leaving the elementary discussions of the basic things. And he says, he lists out some of those things. In verse 3, he says, this we will do if God permits. And then he says, for it's impossible. And and why is that? Well, he's saying, I'm going to leave those basic discussions because anybody who, who might hear those discussions is not going to receive any good from them. Because they are the ground which is receiving only rain and producing briars and thistles. But then skip down to verse 9. He says this. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, although we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. And that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So in speaking of the people to whom he's actually writing the letter unto, instead of just this part where he's speaking about somebody, the writer of Hebrews is attesting, I have great confidence that you're actually saved people. 
And so he says, I'm not going to bother trying to lay the groundwork of salvation to convince those people who've walked away of the truth of Christ. I'm not going to waste my time. Because in doing that, it's not going to do them any good. If God's going to call them, God's going to call them. If he's not, he's not. I'm not going to argue them into the kingdom. So I'm not going to waste my time on that. Instead, I'm going to proceed on with the things that I want to tell you. Yes, Melchizedek is coming. <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll get to that here in a bit. Um, don't know how long, but we'll get there. I'm going to move on to where I'm going. And in the midst of this, look at the things that he speaks of about these people. He says, I have confidence of better things, things that accompany salvation. I've seen the fruit of your life, the work of labor and love. God has. He asserts perseverance, and he asserts it on this ground, on the righteousness and faithfulness of God. And he asserts their perseverance on the immutability of God's counsel. Right? In other words, God doesn't change his mind. God does not alter what he has said he is going to do ever. And this is the ground of our hope and our confidence that we are secure in our salvation, that we will never lose it, that we can never lose it. Because if God is the author of it, and if God is the one who has given it to us, then his working is absolutely secure. And there is nothing that you can do to undo his work. There is nothing that you can do to take yourself out of his hand. Because in the end, it is God who saves. Remember, faith is not a continuum. It's a total change of plane. You are a new creature in Christ because of a new birth. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting at verse 5. Jesus says this, speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit according to the sovereign will of God. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting at verse 10. John writes this. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what we see is that there are those who are born of God and born of the will of God, and those who are born of the will of man. If you are born of the will of the flesh, it's changeable. It alters behavior, not affection. It can be changed again if the affections are stirred. It is always emotionally driven, and it is always fragile. It is based only in the power of man. However, those who are born of the will of God are born of grace by him, 
according to His will. This means that it is an unchangeable reality because God does not change His mind. God does not alter whom He has chosen and God does not alter His position on somebody that He has chosen. He makes a new creature with new affections, new desires, and a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ultimately, what this means is that we have the ability to resist the old affections because the new ones are deeper and truer. So God changes our very nature, which results in a change in our behavior. Rather than changing our behavior and hoping that somehow it will reach our natures. It's sort of like the idea of telling somebody that they can turn a pig into a person if they just dress it up right for long enough. You put it in all the clothes you want, do all the makeup you want to do, take care of all of those things, and in the end, what you still have is a pig. A nature has to be altered. There has to be a transformation at a fundamentally deeper level than any person can do on their own will. It is something that only God can do and only God will do. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 12. Speaking to this, he writes, Paul writes this. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So the person who is born of the Spirit still has the old affections in there somewhere, but they are able to resist them because they, are, they may feel their emotions, but they are not controlled by them as a general rule. And when you become controlled by your emotions, it almost always leads to sin. How many times have you done something in the heat of anger or or in a fit of passion and you regret it instantly because you know it's wrong? You look at it and say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. The old man rose up and what's the tool that he generally uses to instigate rebellion? Emotional responses. Those quick flashes of fire. Beloved, this whole idea of us being able to save ourselves that has been perpetuated in this land drives 100% by emotion, which is why that quick flash of fire that produces this thing dies just as fast. There has to be something profoundly spiritual in the transformation, and that's not something you can produce. But because it's not something you can produce, it's also something you cannot destroy. You feel emotions, but you're not controlled by them. Instead, you are controlled by the Spirit of God, which means that your faith, instead of being fragile, is strong and resilient. It grows under pressure rather than being crushed. 
Still in Romans chapter 8, skip down to verse 31. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also written, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a picture of a person who endures suffering, endures tribulation, endures trial, and instead of being destroyed by those trials, emerges triumphant, victorious, stronger, emerges in a way that Christ is displayed in them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 and following. Paul writes this. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. It is God's power. This is what keeps us always. Remember, nothing is greater than God, and nothing has the ability to take something from Him that He has decided to hold. I want you to pay attention. Who made the decision to hold you? Not you. God. Amen. And since God is the one who made that decision, The security of your salvation rests 100% with Him. It is His work to hold you. It is His job to keep you. It's not yours. Okay? The will of the flesh cannot keep you. It will keep so long as it's convenient. As long as these set of circumstances work out according to the way that I want them to, if my salvation is entirely of my will, I'm happy. And there are those who are never pressed who've made a decision according to their own will because the circumstances fit and their lives truck along in their nice little way and nobody ever pushes and nobody ever presses and nothing ever changes. And they may stay, at least on the outside. But frequently, those who make those kinds of decisions stay until the next good thing comes along. Often it will be a change of church, which ultimately will become a change of doctrine, which ultimately will become a change of faith. Because the faith that they had is not rooted in truth, but instead rooted in their own ideas. That kind of decision cannot be trusted. The will of the flesh will not keep you, because it cannot keep you. However, the will of God 
holds you for all of eternity. The will of God keeps all who have been entrusted to him. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul writes this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Or Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now somebody might ask, okay, it all makes sense, but what if I do something really bad and make God really angry. Do you think you're capable of doing something strong enough to overcome what God has decided to do? Something bad enough to be stronger than the blood of Jesus? Something wicked enough that God himself will look at you and say, you know what, I'm just not going to cover that one. I'm not going to forgive that sin. I'm not going to allow that my son's life will be there. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 10, says this. Therefore, I endure all things for the, work of the, for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation in Christ with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we also shall live with him. If we endure, we also shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Three out of four of those speak of genuine believers. One speaks of those who never accepted Christ, never received him, were never converted, were never made new. The one who denies Christ. Jesus himself gave the warning. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But what do the rest of them tell us? The rest of them tell us that God is not so petty as to forget his promise to keep us. Because even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. How many of you have been faithless even this week? Amen. Every last one of us have been. Every single one of us has made some sort of error, which according to what the scripture tells us we ought to be, counts as faithlessness. Aren't you glad that God remains faithful in the midst of your failure? Nothing else holds us. So in the entirety of this conversation, we have to be committed to the truth that our salvation rests completely with God. Or it is on such unstable ground, it's not even worth talking about. Because here's the truth. If any of your salvation rests with you, you have no hope. If any of it does. And that includes the moment of its beginning. Because you began a good work in you, will be sure to carry it on to the day of completion. Is that what the Bible says? No, it says, he who began a good work in you will be sure to carry it on to the day of completion. 
You didn't begin it. He did. You didn't start this thing. You can't end it. So in the midst of everything else that we see in the scripture, we find this remarkable passage in in the book of Hebrews, which gives us some understanding of why some may follow for a while and then go away. And ultimately, it's because of this. They never were his. But we also find this. There is the assurance of better things going on in the lives of the people of God. And if you just take a moment and look around, you'll see it everywhere. You'll see the evidence that God is at work in his people. That he is at work in those who he has called. That he is at work in those who he has drawn to himself. And that the work that he began, he will finish. So you too will be able to say with Paul, I know in whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he will be able to keep that thing which I have committed unto him against that day. I am absolutely confident that everything that I have entrusted to my God is safe. I have no fear of it. I have no fear whatsoever that I will one day stand in his presence and find that he has been faithless in anything. What I will find when I stand in his presence is that he has kept every single promise he ever made. And that he will continue to keep them for all of eternity. Because consider this. If, if you want to believe that your decision made this happen, what's to say you're not going to decide 10,000 years by 10,000 years in heaven that you're tired of this whole thing? Amen? If you're going to introduce instability, you got to live with instability. And beloved, that's not the flavor of Scripture. That is not what the Bible teaches us about how we're saved and how we're kept. What the Bible teaches us is that we are kept in Christ against a promised day of redemption and we are granted the eternal life that He Himself bought according to His good pleasure and His mercy. It is a gift from beginning to end. And we have no part in it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you would teach us what it looks like to walk in that grace. I pray, God, that you would comfort those who may be doubting, that you would encourage those to walk in truth, Father, that their lives might display the glory of Christ. And I pray, God, that as we finish this day, that anything that I said that's not truth would be dropped But every word that I said that is truth will be planted in us to bear fruit. I pray, God, for your spirit to be among us and upon us. And God, we do continue to seek your face for revival. We ask that you stir us and warm us and transform us. And that you pour out awakening over the land by the revival that you bring upon your church. God, we ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone we pray. Amen. Amen.